0: Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, with your host, Linear Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.
1: Hello, my name is David Obelt. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. Thank you for joining me again on Sunday for the Ukraine War Week in Review. So glad to have you join me today. We're going to be covering six topics today. We're going to be talking about the Kharkiv counteroffensive, Luhansk Oblast, what's next, what's coming up there, Solidar and Bakhmut, a pointless offensive. We're going to talk about what's going on in her song, how Russia has lost its battlefield advantages, and finally, I'm going to give you an opinion piece over war crimes that are going on in Ukraine. <laughs> The Kharkiv counteroffensive isn't over. It entered an extended operational pause. It is starting to move forward again. We're seeing that on the east side of the Oskil River. There's a myth that's forming right now that Russia was planning to leave the whole time, that Ukraine jumped the gun on Russia's plans to leave the Kharkiv Oblast. And that just isn't true. If we go back... To when Russia reset its goals, when they retreated from Kyiv and they started their advance out of Azum, for three days in April, they did everything right. They were doing combined arms maneuver warfare with air support. Southwest of Azum, they moved almost 20 kilometers in a day. And then they stopped. And in our view, they stopped because, well, 20 kilometers is a big move. They're going to reinforce the ground lines. No, they didn't do that. They just went back to what didn't work. The western flank of the Izum axis from Andrika in Donetsk to Andriyka in Kharkiv was always under-defended, all the way back to April. And they were attempting this grinding advance towards Slavyansk. M777 artillery was introduced in May. Ukraine crossed the Sversky Donetsk near Shepil, and special operation forces and artillery started hitting Russian positions. And by mid-June, the Russian 64th and 38th were combat destroyed. They didn't have equipment, they didn't build bunkers because they didn't have the equipment to build bunkers, and the artillery attacks that were going on reduced them to a combat-destroyed state. Russian defensive lines on the West were porous and supply interdiction was already a big problem by the end of May. So Russia pulls four BTGs, battalion tactical groups, around the end of May, early June because they're combat destroyed. So they go from 21 to 17. Then Russia pulls four more and they send them to Lonsk because the front is bogged down in trying to capture several Donets. Now there's 13. Then towards the end of June, they pull more, two more. Now they're down to 11. And it's about that same time that the Russian advance towards Slavyansk has reached its apex. That's as far as they get. The Luhansk People's Republic's Second Army Corps becomes combat destroyed, taking the Luhansk uh, Oblast, along with the Russian army, the, the mission of the Russian army, theater-wide. There's an operational pause, and then Ukraine starts clearly signaling, we're going to go take Kherson back. Russia moves more equipment and troops, and they move them to Kherson, and they move them to Zafrajaya. And by the end of July, the whole Azum axis is exposed. They're defended by the combat-destroyed First Tanks Army, Luhansk People's Republic and Donetsk People's Republic conscript units, and Wagner Group by mercenaries. August 18. Ukraine shells Azum itself and establishes fire control on the M3 and the t twenty one twenty-two highways south of Azum. And a flood of drone videos start to appear showing Ukrainian counter battery on Russian positions in the forest west of Azum, Sherwood Forest, are starting to become very successful. So the Russian troops, which are already combat destroyed, have this little mini battle of the bulge. They launch an offensive to push the Ukrainian troops back to get Ukrainian artillery out of the range of a Zoom. And it lasts for all of 10 days. And by the beginning of September, Ukraine is right back to the August 15th line. There was no plan to abandon Kharkiv. They brought in Russian teachers. They were forcing people to use rubles. They were force-issuing Russian passports. The torture chambers across the region were still full of people. They didn't burn records, destroy videos. They didn't blow up bridges. They didn't sabotage and destroy sensitive electronic warfare equipment. They didn't do one thing that an army making a planned retreat would do. And within the first 24 hours of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, there were graphic pictures of overrun Russian artillery and rocket launcher positions, and their crews were killed. They didn't have time to withdraw. They were ambushed. And within 48 hours, we were seeing the same thing for air defense units. And what we're seeing now is that Ukraine had a post-liberation plan too. There is an army of administrators, investigators, medical personnel, humanitarian aid distribution, structural engineers, civil engineers, linemen, utility experts, even post office officials who followed behind the bomb disposal units that did demining. And they are doing an amazing job of restoring basic services in the liberated area. The combat tail, the third echelon, is catching up with the head, the tip of the spear. And the head, the tip of the spear, has crossed the Oskil in three places and likely has crossed at a fourth location near Borova. To all of a sudden start to go, eh, Russia was planning to leave anyway. Ukraine got lucky. This is rewriting history. Russia reached a point where they were already combat destroyed. They couldn't respond to this offensive. And I think there's another thing that everyone is ignoring. It was very well known that Russian FSB, Russian intelligence agents, had infiltrated all levels of the Ukrainian government and had infiltrated into the Ukrainian military. It is stunning how... Ukraine was able to purge this out of their government and military structure and launch this attack to the point that the details of the units involved, what their targets were, the directions they were going to go, wasn't shared. Russia was blindsided at the end of the day. They could see the troop buildups. They could see that was coming. They were incapable of responding, and they were incapable of putting resources to block where Ukraine planned to go. Ukraine controls 94% of the Kharkiv Oblast. They're starting to cross over the Oskil River. And Luansk Oblast is now in their sights. So what's next and what's going on? The first thing we know is that the 206th of the Luansk People's Republic militia is defending Russia. They're in Valuki. Uh, they posted, hey, we're here and we're defending Russia. The why to defend actually makes sense. The fastest path to capture Trotsky is through a corner of Russia right on the Ukrainian border. Ukraine controls the border crossing now at Pisky. The path to the P-66 highway, which is a critical Russian supply route, runs through Trotsky in Ukraine. The P-7 highway, which is also a key supply line, is now cut off at Kupiansk. The P-79 highway, which was a supply line, is... Also cut off, that ran from Kupiansk to Borova. Pidliman is either under Ukrainian control or Russian troops withdrew to the point that the locals were comfortable enough in raising the Ukrainian flag. The crossing at Borova is likely secured. It's definitely under Ukrainian fire control. The P-7 and the P-66 highways converge in Savatov. That's why that town in Luhansk has become so important. If you cut the P-66 highway at any of the points that I just mentioned, you cut the rail and road supply lines into Kremina. And then with that, Rubizhne, Severodonetsk, and Lischansk. This is why Rubitsi, Yampil, and Kremity Limon are so important for Russia. Those three settlements are holding back Ukrainian forces from moving on Kremina. Take Kremina, you just made resupplying Lyschansk in particular very hard to do. And from Lyschansk, Ukrainian artillery can shell Russian positions in several Donets at will due to the terrain. And from Lyschansk, they can follow the Russian offensive in reverse. They can move downhill from the higher ground southeast towards Hursk-Zolote. Early reports of heavy fighting and Russian reports of successfully repelled attacks on Limon at least at the time that I'm making this recording, are false. That's coming from both sides. Videos within Limon from multiple Russian sources are showing no fighting within the town. War Gonzo told the truth. It's reported that Russian troops in Limon were given the ultimatum to surrender today. We haven't been able to confirm that, but that is the report. Video shows Ukraine artillery is moving across the Sversky Donetsk River. And if artillery is moving over the river at wet crossings, that means mechanized infantry, tanks, and light infantry are already 5 to 10 kilometers ahead and have established safe defensive lines. You're not going to be moving artillery up with the first echelon. That's the second echelon. Video from the Donetsk People's Republic militia shows that the Limon-Zarichne road, which is the only way out for Russian defenders, Earlier this week was wide open. That situation is probably deteriorating. Ukraine's counteroffensive strategy has been to avoid attacking strongholds head-on. And there are an estimated 10,000 civilians that are in Limon. Ukraine is moving to surround the town. And so far, we have not seen Russian forces stand and fight in the face of possible encirclement. They have consistently retreated. Limon reopens a good supply line for Ukraine to Seversk. And from there, a second strong supply line to Soledar and Bakhmut, as well as the ability to move east towards Lysychansk and several Donetsk. Fighting for Drobazhiv and Yampil are going to be tough because Russia is looking at the same maps that everyone else is looking at. Why so much Ukrainian disinformation all of a sudden in Lysychansk? This is psychological operations against Luhansk People's Republic Militia and the Russian bars units that are defending this area. Russia shut down the Internet, cell service, and cable TV. And Russian radio communication networks are a dumpster fire, and that may be insulting to dumpster fires. Ukraine is filling the information vacuum. And we're not used to seeing this because the Ukrainians have certainly been more honest than the Russian Ministry of Defense in providing information. The other thing is, is that Sergei Haidai, who is the governor of the Luhansk Oblast, is very social media savvy. He's on Telegram. He's on Twitter. He's on Facebook. He posts a lot, and he actually posts different things on all three channels. So he understands the value in this. And so we are seeing a lot of disinformation that is being directed to confuse and hurt the morale of the Luhansk People's Republic and the Russian defenders in this area. The offensive for Luhansk is going to move slower than what we saw in Kharkiv, and it will move faster than what we have seen in (laughs) Kherson. Today, video came out showing Russian artillery pounding the eastern edge of Bakhmut, and at the same scale that we saw in Severodonetsk in June. Reports by Wagner that they are deep into Bakhmut clearly aren't true, because if they are true, then they're shelling themselves. So Bakhmut is still to the east of the highway, because the area that's being hit by artillery is just to the west of the highway. And this is the same strategy. They apply this in the Watts, this attritional warfare strategy. Massive artillery barrage, followed by an advance of low-quality light infantry. If the low-quality light infantry is killed, then we're going to repeat the artillery barrage. And we're going to keep bombing this area until it's reduced to dust, and there is nothing left to defend. And then the defenders are going to simply leave, because there's nothing Left Almost two months into trying to capture Bakhmut, Russia has gone back to this attritional warfare model. But it's pointless. With the loss of Azum and Kharkiv and the imminent loss of slivers of northeast Donetsk and advances into Luhansk, it makes no sense. Bakhmut and Solodar hold no strategic value anymore. The artillery and troops that Russia is literally wasting here— could and should be used to reinforce Donetsk City and to reinforce lines in Luhansk. The Svitlodarsk Bulge, which Ukraine willingly withdrew from in early May, doesn't offer any strategic value anymore. And since May, Russian forces advanced 12 to 14 kilometers total, and they've been stuck on this line for almost two months. And even if they take the cities, they're going to be completely destroyed, 90% 90% of the population has already fled. They will never establish administrative control. They don't have the troop strength to even hold the towns. They can't take advantage of this tactical success to advance towards Kramatorsk or northeast towards Seversk. It's a fantasy at this point. And Wagner is turning to prison convicts not as a flex. This is desperation because they can't recruit through conventional means. And two weeks of training in what will be fall and winter combat conditions is inadequate under any circumstance. The Kremlin is paying Wagner Group ridiculous amounts of money, and there is this belief that Wagner has been the only group successful on the battlefield against Ukraine among Russian mill bloggers and among some people in the Russian citizenry. And that myth is going to get shattered if they continue to bang their heads against the wall in Solidar and Bakhmut. It makes no sense at all. What's happening in Kherson? It appears Ukraine controls Pravne west of Kherson, and it appears they actually took control of it within hours of us adjusting our map earlier in the week to go, we don't think they have control of it anymore. There have been reports of repelling Russian attacks against that town for two days in a row now. Ukraine has slowly widened the Inulets River bridgehead and is moving troops further south. The biggest blow to Russia was in Duchane. Heimar's strike destroyed the food and drinking water warehouse and the logistical center for Russian troops east of the Inlets River. And there are multiple units that are now reporting they are low or out of drinking water. And some Russian soldiers are starting to desert, and they're deserting by stealing motorboats and simply going across the Dnipro River. Ukraine's tactic here is different than what they did in Kharkiv. It will be different than what it is in Luhansk. There's not going to be this huge rush towards Kherson because Ukraine doesn't want to fight against strongly defended positions head-on. They're literally starving the Russian troops out. They're depriving them of everything. There is less artillery fire. You can see this in the NASA firm's data. You can see this in the action reports. You can see this in the complaints that are coming from Russian units that they're not getting artillery support. Reports by some pro-Russian sources and the Kremlin of endless airstrikes and Hrsan, this is the stuff of fantasy. Russia lost air superiority in this region almost two months ago. Ukrainian suppress and destroy enemy air defense using harm missiles from the United States has devastated the Russian air defense infrastructure. And Ukrainian air defenses have only gotten better. And the Russian Air Force is risk adverse. They use unguided rockets. They fire from maximum range. We know from videos showing bombing runs that Russian pilots are poorly trained when it comes to hitting targets with unguided bombs. When they were bombing Snake Island, when it was deoccupied, when there was nobody on it, they were attempting to destroy the equipment that they had left behind. The videos showed only 25 to 50% of the bombs dropped landed on the island. Forget landing on the target, landed on the island. This this is a quality training this is quality skills to for the russian ministry of defense to then say you know we're we're pounding and bombing ukrainian positions and we've turned the town into a graveyard at this point i say it again it's the stuff of fantasy ukraine is going to continue to target the supply lines the troop concentrations the ammunition concentrations they're not seeking a kinetic victory In Kherson. Now, they will continue to advance and move in areas where they can achieve their goals of cutting off supply lines, of starving these troops out. Not all battlefield victories are obtained through kinetic warfare. And I'll say it again winter is coming.
0: You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Mount Content News.
1: We're starting to see in the Russian mill blogger space discussions on how Russia has lost or is in the process of losing all of their battlefield advantages in Ukraine, because of the losses that they have suffered over seven months. The first thing is artillery. Russia is still maintaining an artillery advantage in two small areas, and Soledar and west of Donetsk, the city. And that's really it. In Kherson, there's growing complaints. Where is the artillery? that Ukraine is at parity or better. We saw in Kharkiv in the days leading up to the counteroffensive that Ukraine was able to focus to counter-battery, and they were very effective at it. This is an area where Russia had a massive advantage in May and June, almost 10 to 1, and this is evaporating. The next thing is manpower. We're seeing complaints that Ukraine continues to just be able to form troops and form troops. And they try to spin it. The, The Russian mill bloggers are, there's an endless supply of meat. They're just sending people to their death, and it is overwhelming. But we're not seeing that. When you watch the videos, when you look at the pictures, when you look at the available open source intelligence, including what we share in our situation reports that you have access to if you're a patron for $5 a month at the base... What you see is the Ukrainian troops are fit, they are young, they are well-armed, they are well-equipped, and after what happened in Kharkiv, there should be no question on the quality of their training. They are literally sending Luhansk People's Republic militia to the front without even a gun. They are starting to tell LNR conscripts, you need to find a gun off of a dead body. Who's sending meat to the front? Russia is recruiting homeless people. They are going into hospitals and into mental institutions and into the prisons. In Luhansk and Donetsk, they have essentially goon squads going around, pulling men off of the street, putting them on a bus. They get one week of training. They are sent to the front. They're doing this because they have no manpower. We have said for almost two months Rushes out of light infantry because they mismanaged and they don't treat their light infantry with the respect and care that you should treat any other weapon. Grunts with guns take territory. Grunts with guns hold territory. Russia's officer corps is gutted. They have lost over 1,100 officers documented. This isn't a fantasy number. This is looking at the obituaries in local newspapers, the the postings on VK, the in-memory of. That's where that information's coming from. They've lost over 1,100 officers. That's not even counting the ones that have been fired or have had accidents. And Russia doesn't have an NCO Corps. They don't have non-commissioned officers. They are run from the top down. So losing these officers is devastating. It is even more devastating than a Western military, because Western military have people that can move up from the bottom and take those positions, and Russia doesn't have that. We've already talked about recruiting efforts. We've already talked about training. But the other area, the part that I think that historians are going to spend a lot of time analyzing is how... Russia not only was not able to achieve air superiority, but they're losing their ability to defend their airspace. And not just in Kherson. We are seeing more than a dozen airstrikes a day now at multiple targets in Northeast Donetsk and in Luansk. The Ukrainian Air Force is operating with almost impunity in some areas that 60 days ago, they wouldn't have dared put an airplane, because Russia's air defense systems are so degraded. It is to the point that Russia is taking the air defenses from St. Petersburg, and they are moving them to Ukraine. So picture this, if you're from the United States. Imagine if we were at war with one of our border countries, and we have good relations with our border countries, so it's hard, but just play along with this and we're being told it's going great. It's going great. It's going great. And all you see on Facebook and Instagram is, you know, your neighbors are dying and your friends are die- but it's all great. It's all going to plan. And then you find out that the Pentagon has decided to strip away the air units that are based in the northeastern United States, the air defenses for New York City and redeploy them to the front. Are you going to go, yeah, it's all okay. Things are going great. That's why they must be having to take what is going to defend the Northeastern United States and bring it up to the front now. Because that's what's happening in Russia. Russia can't win at this point. This is going to be a dangerous phase. It is dangerous for the Kremlin, and it's dangerous for the world because there are people starting to ask questions As Russia is running out of conventional weapons, they're running out of troops, they're running out of precision missiles. This is why we see them using S-300 anti-aircraft missiles to attack ground targets. They're not particularly great at it because, yeah, you can do it. They have set them up that they can do it, but they're not very good at it. They're running out of calibers. They're running out of Iskandars. So what happens as they go to their weapon storage, their cupboards, and they find the cupboards are bare. We'll have to see. The last thing I want to cover today is the war crime situation. This, is, this show is a lot of assessment and opinion, um, but uh, this is all opinion. This is all me. I'm going to own this. Butchah. Mariupol, Olenvovika, Izum. We already know there's mass graves in Herson. They've been visible from outer space since March. We've documented and we've shared this in our situation reports. We're past the point of making excuses. These aren't acts of a few bad actors at the wrong place at the wrong time. This is systemic. It is part of Russian military doctrine. We saw this in Chechnya, and we chose not to look. On September 8th, 2016, Libertarian presidential candidate Gary Johnson flippantly asked, Where's Aleppo? Well, it's in Syria, Gary. And we saw this happening in Syria. And we chose not to look. We giggle when oligarchs fall out of five-story windows that are locked from the outside. We can't even remember the names of activists or Russian reporters who disappeared that weren't in a band named Pussy Riot. The Kremlin has told the Russian people for the last 20 years, they've been stabbed in the back. Life was better before Glasnost. And for people in rural areas, for the working class, that very well may be true. But the part that they're not being told is the same thing that people in rural areas and the working class aren't being told in other parts of the world. Technological advances and globalization took their jobs away, not politicians. And some bastardized version of fake democracy and capitalism is not to blame. A return to a better Stalinist state won't change the reality of life for the ordinary Russian. It may not make it worse, but it's not gonna make it better. In St. Petersburg and Moscow, little has changed, but these two cities and their suburbs are a nation within a nation. Russians are told the West wants to destroy them. They are told anyone who is against Russian anything is a Nazi. They are told their enemies are both weak and inferior, and yet at the same time, all-seeing, all-powerful, God-level, ready to destroy them. And that is a fascist calling card. They are taught a distorted view of history, a false history. They're taught Russia has no boundaries. That Alaska was only leased to the United States, and the United States stole it after the 99-year lease was over. Ukraine never existed. Its culture, its language, its history, none of it. This was just a mistake of Lenin that needs to be erased. They are taught that ethnic Russians are superior to other races. They are denying their history of being an ally to the Nazis at the start of World War II the September 17, 1939 invasion of Poland that Stalin and the Soviets led. France, England, Belgium believed that Russia's advance into Western Europe would collapse because they would run out of oil and run out of coal. What they didn't know is that Stalin and the Soviet Union, as part of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, was supplying Germany with refined fuels, oil, and coal, They deny that 1.5 million Poles, many who were ethnic Jews, were deported to Siberia and sent to labor camps, that tens of thousands of Polish military officers were executed by the Soviets, that Stalin ordered the Russian army in July of 1944 to sit back and watch Germany destroy Warsaw. And with it, up to 50,000 members of the Polish resistance after Stalin told the members of Polish resistance, yes, go, because we are going to send the tanks and the airplanes to help you. They deny the gutting of Polish factories and warehouses and schools and the equipment and technology that was all taken back to Russia. And the idea that Ukrainians are subhuman doesn't stop at the Ukrainian border. Anybody who is against Russia is a Nazi. Anyone who is a Nazi is subhuman. If you are listening to this and nodding your head, the Russian people are being taught you are a Nazi, and with that, subhuman. I'm not saying every person in Russia thinks this, but this is what state media tells them. This is what they're teaching their kids in school. Every square kilometer that Ukraine liberates will be covered in the stains of Russian war crimes. Everyone's gonna have to accept this and get comfortable with this. Every moment of good news is going to be followed by horror. And this leads to a bigger problem for Ukraine. What do they do with collaborators and with those that believe the myth that Russia was and is a benevolent liberator? Maybe Ukraine should take a page of history Maybe the collaborators, the deniers, the supporters, maybe they should walk through those grave sites into Zoom, walk through the torture chambers, see it with their own eyes, smell the death, taste it in their mouth, because then it's tangible, then it's real, then it's undeniable. And to those of you who are going to say, you're only being told it's real, I say to you, you're only being told It's not real. So what proof do you have that your reality is the real reality? Because I'm following history, and history taught me, and it should teach you in Chechnya and Dagestan and Syria. So why is it magically different now? Think about it. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back to our daily updates as we normally are on Mondays through Saturdays. If you like independent journalism, if you like the coverage that we do, it is not possible without your support. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. You can go to patreon.com slash Malcontent. You can download the Google News app and you can follow us. We're on Malcontent News. Simply search for us in the app make us a favorite you can follow our social media channels and you can visit our website at malcontentnews.com thank you so much for listening and be good to each other
0: you've been listening to the malcontent news russia ukraine war podcast to help keep us independent please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron want on-demand news in your hand